more for us. Father, I thank you for your perfect word. I thank you, God, for its power, its sufficiency, its authority, its perfection. I praise you, Father, that you've given this to us that we might, when we gather, draw from it, knowing that it is you speaking to us. And so, Father, I pray that you would help me as I preach, Lord, to glorify you in my words, my delivery, my content, my tone. Please watch over me, Father. Watch over my mind. Watch over my mouth. And be honored, Lord, and help me speak in such a way that I can be understood by everyone in the room. And, Lord, I pray that you would watch over everyone who is listening. That, God, you would enable each of us to hear and to understand this word which is able to save our souls. And this we ask in the name of Jesus Christ alone. Amen. <clears throat> One of the um, dangerous things, I guess for lack of a, a better word, about these little sayings or sound bites that we come to know as Christians and that we use um, almost as habit, these cliches or little things, and uh, is that little sayings or sound bites don't always say enough of the truth or rarely say enough of the truth to stand alone, to stand alone. That's why a little personal thing about me, I'm not a fan of church signs. I love ours, and I really mean that. I'm not just buttering it up. I, I like the fact that ours is very, we say that, that, you know, the sermon that's coming, I think that's good. I think, you know, welcome, that kind of thing is good. But signs can, they can cause more confusion than they mean to. I don't think that's ever the intent, really. But if it's just a little saying, it just doesn't, you know, Christianity is not a, a soundbite religion. And one of those sayings, the reason I'm thinking about that is because as I looked over this text and tried to get ready for this for today, one of the sayings that's so familiar to us that we use so much, have you ever heard the saying that a person is so heavenly minded they're no earthly good? The point being that if you think too much about heaven or if you think too much on heaven, you'll be in a daze somehow. You'll have your head up in the clouds um, and you won't be able to focus here on the things that need to be done and the things that are important. What if the goal of the Christian life is to live with our head up in the clouds? What if heavenly mindedness is the key to any actual earthly goodness? Now, I think that's precisely the point the Apostle Paul is making this morning as we continue in Colossians chapter 3 today. Because the Colossian believers had been raised with Christ. They were called to live lives that reflected their new identity by setting their minds on Him. The Christian life is not the result of what we do. It's the result of setting our minds on Christ alone. So now may we hear and believe God's Word together. I'm going to read the first four verses to start of Colossians chapter 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. So every argument Paul makes here in this imperative section, 
the commands, the instructions, is based on something being true about Jesus. That's why you see the word if in 2.20 from last week, and if again in chapter 3, verse 1. So in this section on commands, in this section on what is practical about the gospel for everyday life, Paul assumes that Jesus is relevant for everyday life because of what he's accomplished in the gospel. So all throughout Colossians, Paul is going after that age-old issue of how we can be freed from sin. How are we freed from its effects? And so false teaching, which is what they're dealing with there, may take root because we lose patience with ourselves. We know what the Bible calls us to, and we we lose patience with our inability to get it right or to do it. So when a new solution, something plausible comes along that promises us success, right? if you want to break this habit, this is what you do. If you want to have a great marriage, this is what you do. If you want to excel at work, this is what you do. When something like that comes along, something new and fresh that other people have used and it works, it makes it plausible. And so we think, okay, maybe that's what I need to do. Maybe that's what I'll do. And we start thinking like that and trying to apply those things and do those things. The problem is that we think human nature is to believe that given the right rules and the right directions, we'll be just fine. We tend to think that what we lack is the right information. And so if we can find the right information, we'll be fine. When in actuality, our biggest problem is our inability to discern information correctly. Because our hearts have been corrupted and have been destroyed by our sinful desires. We have to understand the main problem we are facing is inside of us. It's in our own hearts, not outside of us. Which is why Jesus is the only true solution to what is wrong with us. Only Jesus can penetrate the heart in the gospel Jesus has set Himself up deliberately for us as a defense and a refuge. He's the Savior from believing that we can get it right through our own behavior or be made right through our own behavior. In 2.20, Paul talked about the implications of dying with Christ. You remember, if you've died with Christ to the elemental spirits of the world, and his point is that we're no longer called to submit to law to stop the indulgence of our flesh. That's his argument. You're dead to the world. So don't use the principles of the world, which is where the law now is, to find your identity, your confidence, your hope, your maturity. Now, in chapter 3, Paul is going to talk about the implications of rising with Christ. right? Dying with Him, dying to the world, and now rising with Him. We look to Him to be rescued from the indulgence of our flesh. We've died to using worldly systems to be free. We've been raised to new life where our whole identity is shaped by the obedience and forgiveness of another for us. And Paul says, fix your minds on Him. Let your mind go to where Christ is, because his point here is, spiritually speaking, that is where we are, believer. That is where we are. We have to get our head up in the clouds to survive down here. That's Paul's whole point. Paul calls us to live in light then of spiritual realities, of invisible things, not things we can measure, not the things of this world, nothing we can see or measure with our eyes. Set your mind on none of those things. We live by our minds, Paul is telling us. 
We live by the knowledge of what is true for us because of what Christ has done for us. We do not live by the knowledge of what we can see. We walk by faith. We do not walk by sight. And if you listen to us talk, we say, of course, that we know that. You walk by faith, not by sight. We walk by sight. And we try to call it faith. We don't make a decision until we can see that it's the right one to make. You know, somehow walking by faith means you have to wait for all the right doors to open. What? Wait a minute. Why do you need a door to open if you're walking by faith? It's just, these are the kinds of things we tell ourselves that we let get into our minds that we don't really question whether or not they're valid. We don't look to what is seen. We don't look to what is seen. We look to Christ. Notice how Paul argues again. If then you've been raised with Christ. If that is true, and the implication here to the believers is that it is true. That's why he's saying it. If that's true, seek the things above because that's where Christ is. That's his rationale for seeking what is above. Set your mind on things above. It says it two different ways. Not on things of the earth because you have died. So he's confirming 2.20, right? You have died and since you have, your life is hidden with Christ in God. Think on that statement as often as it comes to your mind. Your life is hidden with Christ in God, believer. If the accuser, or if our jobs, or our families, or our relationships, or our lack, or our suffering, or our sins, if any of, the, if any of those things wanted to take our lives from us, They would have to storm the gates of heaven, fight their way through the countless myriad called the host of heaven, find their way somehow after all that into the throne room of God, assault Christ, and rip you from Him in the Father. That's the impossibility of you being taken away if your life is hidden with Christ in God. Nothing can separate us from Him. Nothing. That's why Paul is telling us this. He just reiterates the same things over and over again. Do we know where we really live? Do you know your true address, beloved? And this isn't foolishness to consider. It's not a waste. It doesn't make you aloof to live like this. The only thing that can ground us on earth is to know that we reside in heaven. Look at verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears then you also will appear with Him in glory. So, we do not set our hope on our own sanctification to know that we're alright. We do not set our hope on our own progress in the faith. We set it firmly on the fact that when Jesus comes, we will be with Him. The earthly is transformed into the heavenly by the appearing of Jesus. Not by making ourselves better through earthly means. Beloved, Jesus comes to us. We do not rise to Him. Verses 5 through 11. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Isn't that strange? Desiring something that somebody else has tells you what your God is. That's what's on the line in covetousness. It's worshiping another God. That's amazing. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. 
In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now, since you're dead to those things, you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its Creator. Here... There is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. So notice the rationale Paul argues from here at the beginning of this section. How does the word therefore work in Colossians 3, 5? What came before it? What was Paul talking about? The fact that we've died to the world and have been raised with Christ. Therefore, put to death what is earthly in you, because you've died to the world, not to prove you're a Christian. It's not what he's saying. This isn't a litmus test text. To, to Have I really put these things to death? That's not his rationale here. This isn't challenging anybody's assurance right here. He's saying that since you've died to the world, put to death all the things about you that are earthly. Why continue to live enslaved to things that are no longer our master? But we also need to ask ourselves, and why to do that, would we use rules and regulations, asceticism, right? You would think that asceticism is the answer to bad habits and to indulging the lust of the flesh. The, the, the normal human thing is, is that the way you conquer something is, is to deny it Deny yourself that thing, and then eventually you'll be free from it. Paul says, no, 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 no. That is worthless to stop the indulgence of the flesh. God is not after people that grit their teeth to do the right thing, but still really want the bad things. God is after a transformed heart that is set free from those things because all of one's hope is in Christ. That's what they worship. That's what they love. That's what they desire. We're transformed by new affections, not by our own willpower keeping us from doing the bad things. This is Paul's whole argument here. We put to death the habits and the means of breaking them that come from the world by fixing our minds on Jesus. Our lives are hidden with Christ in God. When, when, when you get to 3.5 and Paul says, put to death, therefore, we need to know, because we've been following all along, that in Colossians 2.20, we know that whatever put to death means, you're not going to do it by rules and regulations. That was 2.20 to 23. So when we get to that command, put to death, therefore, it's based on something else. It's not based on now, you really need to get committed and, and dig in and really get serious about this. No, that's not going to work. That's not going to work. All these things. Put to death doesn't happen by getting really serious about rules and regulations and commitments. Put to death happens by setting our minds on Christ. Because all the wicked things by which we hurt ourselves that he's talking about here. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. All the wicked things by which we hurt others, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, which, by the way, includes gossip. Obscene talk, corrupting talk that comes out of our mouths, includes gossip. It's like we think if we don't cuss, we're we're somehow really holy. 
Yeah, if, if you gossip, your mouth is obscene. Right? I'm, not, we're not, I'm not saying go out and cuss now. That's not what I meant. Right? Don't straw man that. Say, oh, pastor said, oh, pastor said I could cuss. No, he did not. Don't be going out there. I'm saying it, gossip is obscene. It's obscene. Dishonesty, he says. God's wrath is coming because of these things. God's wrath is coming. You and I have been delivered from God's wrath in Christ. There's no need to do these things anymore. There's no need for them. All the things in these two lists, verses 5 and 8 and 9, all those sins, if you look at them, are sins that we commit because we don't believe that Jesus is enough. We don't trust in His Word and His promises to provide for us and hold us and keep us, so we worship other gods that we make, that we believe can deliver those things. It's idolatry. We tear other people down so that we look good because we are insecure and we lack identity. These are all Jesus problems. We lash out because we don't trust that God's timing and God's ways are best. Right? We, we gossip, bottom line, because we don't love one another. We're too obsessed with ourselves. We, we have to put all these things away. They no longer make any sense given who we are. Paul isn't saying that if you struggle in any of these things that you must not be a Christian. That's not Paul's rationale here at all. His point is that there's no need to live any longer as though you are a citizen of this world. You're not, believer. You are not a citizen of this world. This is arguing from the truth of the gospel rather than arguing for, for earthly ways and means to somehow make us more Christian. Right? Paul says... We've put off that person and the things that they did. We've put on a new self. And notice, beloved, Paul says that has happened. It's true now. You have put on the new self, believer. That is true. It's happened. Putting on the new self is something that Christ has done to us because of what He's done for us. It's not something we make happen as we obey and do good. No, you have put on the new self. It happened at conversion. The old you died, a new creation was made, was born. The new self is there. Paul is saying, realize that. Realize that. Paul is calling us to live in light of what is true. He's not calling us to make things come true. How could he do that with a straight face after 2, 20 through 23? He's not going to reverse his whole point or his whole argument a couple of verses later and say, now, really get to work and get ascetic and start denying yourself and get serious and make more rules and make more regulations so that you don't mess up. Why would he do that after what he just said at the end of chapter 2? There is a method to breaking the indulgence of the flesh, and it is important. It's just that it's setting your mind on Christ. It's a spiritual thing. A spiritual thing. Don't work for it. Set your mind on Christ. Don't work for perfection. Set your mind on Christ. This new self, Paul says, is being renewed after the image of its creator. It's happening. It's being made. We are being made to look like Jesus. And when He appears, verse 4, it's not a maybe. When He appears, it will be done. Not before. Not until. 
as we set our minds on Him, verses 1 through 4, we are being renewed then because our focus has changed. We are renewed by what our focus is on. We are shaped by what we focus on. In Romans 12, Paul says it this way. He says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then he has that same idea here of renewal, the renewing of the mind through knowledge. We find in Colossians 3 that being transformed by the renewing of your mind takes place when your mind is fixed on Christ. We need a new focus. It's everything Paul is arguing for here. We have an unhealthy obsession with our behavior and with the behavior of those around us. Their sins, their righteousness, our sins, our righteousness. When it's, it's all we tend to talk about when our minds are supposed to be fixed on Christ. There are always books. They're always going to be there. Books and, and pithy sayings in social media or elsewhere, tweets. You're always, you know, you're going to be, uh, if you're on Instagram, you might notice every once in a while, or even on Facebook, somebody will, and man, I hope nobody's in here ever, has ever done this. I'm going to feel really dumb. But, uh, you know, you post the picture of your open Bible and your coffee, and you're just, you're just telling the world that you're reading your Bible. <laughs> it's, you're always going to be challenged by other people's need to feel righteous. You know, we're always going to be measuring ourselves based on whether or not we're good as such and such a person or if we're meeting a standard that we think we need to meet. And so do you understand what's happening there is a spiritual issue. The focus is wrong. It, it, it's not that holiness and glorifying God are somehow now unimportant. It's that the, 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 we believe that they're attainable by earthly means and methods when Paul is saying, why would you do that? Set your mind on Christ. Be heavenly minded. Get your mind up there. And it, it's, it's, I don't know. In, in the last maybe 30 years or so, I mean, I, I, and I, I say that because I've just, you know, had the opportunity to, to study, obviously, to be in ministry, right? You, you need to study and do all those things. And so you just, you read and you go to school and you go to conferences and you listen to things from so many different people. And in, in the last 30 years or so, I think the goal of most books and most ministries has been to make everybody doubt whether they're even a believer. Like, like everything that comes out is, you know, you need to be doing this. And if you're the real deal, it will look like this. And it's just, it's just constant. So there's always people out there calling you back to what true Christianity is. Don't be overtaken by this. Don't be swayed by this. And it's just a constant because if you are, you might not be a believer. And it's, it's just a constant ministry of doubt. You just create doubt because somehow doubt is more holy. Then if, if you actually just rested in Christ, you're going to be told that you're lazy and that you don't take it seriously enough. And, and what does the Bible tell you to do? Every command is grounded in the gospel. Every do this is grounded in because it's already been done for you by Christ. And God has accepted that on behalf of all who believe. And I know there are texts that speak to what we ought to be doing. And we're in them right now. But you'll notice they never undermine the work of Jesus in us. When we're trying to get better, so to speak, as though that's the goal of Christianity. When we're trying to get better we bypass the work and the power of the Holy Spirit. 
the irrevocable promises of God for His new covenant people in Christ. It's very ironic to me that we have so many people telling us to inspect our own fruit all the time. Monitor your own progress. You know, Be diligent to make your calling and election sure. Right. Because you've been granted these great promises, is what Second Peter says in total. Monitor your progress. Inspect your fruit. Know what you're doing. Know, And Jesus comes along and says, yeah, don't even let the left hand know what the right hand is doing. That's how, that's how much I want you to be measuring what you're doing. Don't keep a record. Right? So maybe you're supposed to keep a secret diary where you write all your good deeds so you know how well you're doing, but you keep your eyes closed so you don't know what you're writing. You ever see that episode of The Little Rascals where Spanky and Stymie... <laughs> Spanky and Stymie find that love letter and the guy goes to read it but he makes them put cotton balls in their ears so they won't hear what they're reading because they're too young for it. It's a great episode. But nothing earthly belongs in us. Nothing. Paul says here, verse 11, here in this place, in this body, made up of non-earthly people, there aren't even normal earthly distinctions anymore. Right? We're not defined by them. They're there, but we're not defined by them. Our lives are so hidden with Christ in God, we aren't even spiritually identified anymore by our external markings. Ethnicity, status, culture, standing. Again, those things aren't gone. They're real. They're there. They haven't gone away. But they do not define the body. They do not define us. Here in the church, Paul says, Christ is all. And Christ is in all. All eyes on Christ is what he's saying. All eyes on Christ. We are all individually new selves that are being transformed into one image, the image of Christ. Not by what we do, but by what we behold by what we have set our minds on. That's the way the conforming into the image of Christ takes place. Our focus is on Him. And He is so great and glorious and holy and perfect and beautiful and merciful that beholding Him has transforming power. It is a lie of the evil one to make you think you can be transformed by looking in the mirror and promising that person you're going to be better. That person will kill you. That person cannot save you. Christ is everything here. And Christ is in each one here. All those identities and characteristics now spiritually are null and void. Christ is making us one in Him by putting to death what is earthly in us through the power of the gospel. So, verse 12, put on then. See, you have put off, now put on. Put on then as God's chosen ones. That's a powerful way to construct a sentence. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another. Bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must Forgive. 
And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Look, look, look back again at verse 12. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, beloved, behavior flows from identity. Behavior flows from identity. These commands come to us because we are something not so that we will become something. It is not put on then to become God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Put on then because that's what you are. You are God's chosen ones. All who believe. He pronounces us holy. He has set His eternal love and divine affection on us. So, Paul says, put on the clothes He bought for you. Wear what Jesus died to give you. You realize, do we realize how, when we see this, this list here, no problem, right? Okay, holy and beloved, compassion, I'll be compassionate. Kind, I can do that. Humility, meekness, patience, I just gotta do those things. Bear with one another in love, always forgive. We, the, do we realize how compassionate God has been to us? When you see that, this, this command to be compassionate, let your, set your mind on Christ in that moment. Set your mind on Christ when the command breaks you. Because sometimes we aren't compassionate. How kind He has been to us. The command to be kind, set your mind on His kindness. How far He humbled Himself in Jesus to come close to us. How patient He is with us. How much He puts up with bearing with us. How quick He is to forgive us. And notice that that's where Paul brings in that rationale. God's vertical forgiveness of me is the basis for my horizontal forgiveness of others, which is always required because God has always and totally forgiven me. So there are no exceptions. How can you obey that? How can we do that? Okay, I will always forgive. Well, if that's the way you want to be about it, then good luck. Because that's the best you have to work with if you think you can obey that command. Well, why did God give it? Well, because Christ is there. You focus on Him, you become forgiving. This is what we're being called to because what we're commanded to do is impossible to perform. That's the point of it. That's what law does. It breaks And now there's Christ forgiving as you have been forgiven. That's the same predicate you find in 2.6. right? It's it's, it's the same basis, the same as. As you received, so walk. As you've been forgiven, so forgive. You see, the, the reference point in obedience is always Christ, which is why set your mind on Him. Set your mind on Him. The gospel is the reference point in verse 13. Forgiving as you have been forgiven. 
If you set your mind then on your own effort and determination and willpower to be a forgiving person, you are never going to be one. You may occasionally forgive, but you will not be a forgiving person. The only hope we have to obey these commands that we are commanded to obey is to set our minds on Christ. To focus on how He has forgiven you and you won't be able to hold the sins of others against them. The more our hearts are broken by the fact that we have been forgiven, the more we are going to be forgiving. Set your mind on Christ. Set your mind on Christ. God doesn't mark us as His own here if we obey these things. You have to see that. Because remember, behavior flows from identity. If you don't start from the fact that God has accepted you and saved you and made you His own, paid your debt, justified you, made you righteous, if, 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 if behavior doesn't flow from that, it's going to flow from, I'm trying to get there. I'm trying to attain those things by my behavior. And when that happens, we miss Christ. We miss Christ. One of two ways. We either become a Pharisee who thinks we are righteous, so anybody else should be. Or, like we've said before, you become so despondent because you're realistic about your inability that you walk away and you quit. The cure to being a Pharisee and the cure to giving up because you can't do it is setting your mind on Christ. Which is why Paul is arguing the way that he is. We, We obey because we have God's favor. We do not obey to earn God's favor. This outward lifestyle that glorifies God is the result of setting our minds on Christ. All of Paul's instructions here flow from that one thought. Just that one thought. Notice what he says in verse 14. Above all these things, above all of these gospel-based behaviors, put on love. That's, that's the big one. Put on love. Why? Because love binds everything together in perfect harmony. Love is the divine glue that seals all the fissures between us. That's what it does. So the the tangible, the visible unity, the felt unity, if you will, of the body of Christ is always threatened by the things we do to hurt one another. The gospel is the only cure for this. We've talked on Wednesday nights a little bit about how a gospel culture where we're constantly speaking the truth of Christ in love to one another ultimately creates a kind of greenhouse effect where everything is just affected and determined by the gospel. When all eyes are fixed on Christ in love, the love that He has demonstrated for us, when that is the thing that gives me my identity, when His love is the thing that gives me my hope, other things, even the things that people do to hurt me, begin to look like what they are. And beloved, everything looks tiny when compared to the glorious risen Christ. Everything. I mean, in that place, this this place, this here of verse uh, 11, in that place where the love of Christ is flowing freely into our souls, perfect harmony is the result. God gives us a straight line for every problem. Where Christ is not the focus. Where Christ is not the goal. Again, not assumed, not on the periphery, deliberately. Everything else is being healed in the light of His glory and grace. That's how big He is. 
That's why he told us 1, 15 through 20. He's that big. Is that, is, is that kind of unity and harmony possible in a church filled with sinful human beings? Sure it is. Sure it is. Because Jesus is sufficient. Because Jesus is sufficient. We, we punt on who we've been called to be because we won't face the fact that our human means of making things better don't work. And if you can't measure it and you can't draw a line on it and all these things, if, if it isn't tangible like that, we don't, we don't know how to trust in it. We, we want to be earthly focused for things to get better. And, and the Bible is calling us away from that. Our effort won't do it. Our attempts at it, our designs, our strategies will not accomplish the things God has called us to do and they won't make us the people we've been called to be. We really do walk by faith and not by sight. We really do earthly good by being heavenly minded. But that is a lot slower than if you just implement a program and say, in six weeks, this will be better. In eight weeks, this will work. If you do this, the church will grow. It doesn't work that way. And what makes it plausible is that sometimes you do get results. But when our focus is on the results and not on Christ, the growth we have is not honoring and glorifying to God. Paul just calls us to a spiritual life. A spiritual life. Notice, if God has reconciled us to Himself, that's, that's the rationale here. I use that word a lot, but that's the rationale. If God has reconciled us to Him, if, if, the, if, if the void between the holy and the common has been healed in Christ, how in the world do our fissures between one another remain unhealed and unmended? How can that be? If that gap can be filled, how can this one not be? What is happening there? The focus is not on Christ. The focus is not on Christ. Notice what Paul says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. What governs us? What rules us? What is our master? It's the reconciliation that has taken place between God and us that Christ has purchased. Let what Christ has done, let what Christ has achieved for us before God rule, be the literal master of our own hearts. The thing that determines everything else, that calls all the shots, is the peace of God in Christ. That's why we're called to it as a body. Because Christ has accomplished it. Law, the constant heavy hand of guilt and conviction, are not to rule our hearts. Yes, the Holy Spirit convicts, absolutely. Yes, we will feel conviction. Yes, there are commands in the Bible. They are not to rule your heart. The peace of Christ is to rule your heart. 100%. We attacked God in the garden. We were all there. All in old Adam. We attacked Him. And He turned His Son over to us to make peace between us. That's who He is. That's who He is. The fact that God could have smashed us and instead loved us and sent His Son to die for us, to forgive us and heal us, that's the thing that rules me now. That's the narrative shaping my life now. It's what we've been 
called to as one body, we're never meant to move beyond the gospel. He says, let the word, the living word, dwell in us richly. Richly let the word dwell in us. The Greek is plusios, abundantly, largely. Sometimes the word even means excessively. What God has said to us in Jesus is meant to literally bubble and stir inside of us to the point that it overflows in thankfulness to other people. So it's, it's, this word then transforms us into a thankful people, a forgiving people, a compassionate, kind, humble, loving people. And as that, as those kinds of people, not as a neurotic, insecure, miserable people, but as a peaceful, loving, thankful people, we are called, notice here, all of us, all of us are called to this, not just the pastor, not just the deacons, not just the staff, if you will, all of us to teach and lovingly stir one another up, to sing and give psalms of hope and joy to one another. God doesn't call a people struggling to gain His approval or anxious about whether or not He accepts us to help one another. If that's how we all are, we're not going to help one another, let alone forgive one another and love one another and treat each other kindly. All fractures in the church result from not believing that Jesus is good enough. All of them. Notice how this section starts in verse 12. Notice that again. You belong to Him. It's what Paul is saying. He has accepted you forever. He has made you His own. All your debt is paid. All your sins are forgiven. Set your minds on Him. You have so much to be thankful for. Let all that truth dwell inside of you largely, abundantly, excessively so that the gospel is the well from which we draw to speak to and love and serve and help one another. Let that be what motivates. If what motivates Christian service and Christian identity is guilt and fear and intimidation and insecurity. There will only be famine. People starving for acceptance from God don't have any food to give to lift up another. But when we set our minds on Christ, the bread of life, and He fills us again and again and again. We will move towards one another in love and compassion and joy and thanksgiving. Could you imagine a church like that? What an oasis it would be. What a breath of fresh air it would be in a world like ours. I, I, I say that not as a, in a condemning way. You know, I, I say it as a, as a pastor, just watching people burn out. And, just, and church becomes a task and a drag and, and something that makes their life harder. What we've done is we've sanctified that. We've made it holy because we're ashamed of it. That, you know, if, if you're not having a hard time, then God must not be at work in you. What? Don't, don't do that, beloved. Don't, don't look at what's true, realize we don't have it, and then change the word to accommodate it. This is attainable because Christ has accomplished all this for us. It's not a matter even... Attainable is probably the wrong word. It's, it's been purchased. It's there for the taking. We set our minds on Him. This is who we become. When we set our minds on Him, the bread of life, 
We're filled. We're filled. We're filled. Notice, notice the end of the text here. Notice what Paul does in verse 17. Whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of Jesus. Right? The name that means, why in the name of Jesus? Why do everything in the name of Jesus? Because that name means redemption and salvation and forgiveness, hope, joy, sufficiency, relevance, peace. Jesus is always supposed to be the point of reference in the church. And not assumed, not in the periphery, Jesus proclaimed. Jesus deliberately focused upon. Jesus, the center, the thing that every mind is fixed on all the time. All the time. So, beloved, I have no other takeaway for you this morning than to set your mind on Christ. That's how we apply this passage. Set your mind on Christ. Be heavenly minded. Seek the things that are above. It's the only way to be any earthly good. For all who have believed in Him this morning and for all who in this moment know that Jesus is calling out to you to give you life. Do you know what's true right now in heaven about you? When was the last time you sat and thought, don't let that guilt you. I mean it to encourage you. Do this thing. When was the last time you sat and thought and just dwelled on for a while what is true in heaven about you right now? The God of heaven and earth loves you and me. He loves you and me. When we fell and rebelled against Him, He didn't throw His hands in the air. He didn't look down on us in disgust. He didn't kick His can and go home because we weren't going to do what He wanted us to do. Like as an earthly father, you can do, you can hold your own dreams for your kids over them and smash them, you know, because you're, you're, again, think about that. How do we parent our kids? Do we parent them as do this, get it right, do this, get it right, I love you, or I love you, you're mine, you're my child, nothing's ever going to change that. Don't be disrespectful to your mother, for example, right? If every behavior flows out of identity, Changes everything. Changes everything. So the dreams this Father has for us, they were realized by Jesus. It's done. God is pleased. He's pleased. We died to the world with Jesus. We were raised to new life with Jesus. Ephesians even says that we were seated with Jesus in the heavenly places at the right hand of God. Our lives are hidden with Him there. Right now. He has promised not to leave us or forsake us. He has promised to finish the work He started in us. He calls us in Philippians to work out this salvation with fear and trembling. But notice that verse. It's not to gain God's favor. It's because God is already pleased to be at work in us. He has given us hope. He has promised us a future. And none of it is dependent on me or what I do. There's nothing I can do to make Him love me less. There's nothing I can do to make Him love me more. We're just going to have to accept the fact that the gospel is so good that when you really preach it, it sounds crazy. The gospel is not something you and I live out. I used to think that. And I used to preach like that and just hold that over people's heads and obligation over their heads. The gospel is something Christ has done for us. So the gospel is literally the story of Jesus living out all that God required of us and giving it to us for free by His blood 
by his death, by his resurrection. And we're called to set our minds on him this morning, beloved. Look to Christ. Look to Christ. When Paul said that legalism is worthless to stop the indulgence of the flesh in chapter 2, he didn't leave us without an answer as to how we're set free from the things that hurt and destroy ourselves and each other. He grounds our hope in the gospel to do that. He calls us to look to Jesus, to the source of our life and redemption and freedom, because he is enough. Because he is enough. The Christian life is not the result of what we do, but of setting our minds on Christ alone. So let's get our heads up in the clouds this morning, beloved. Look to him and live. Live. If you're here this morning and you know him and you need him, come and pray. You're welcome to come and pray. We're here at the front. If you don't know this Jesus we're talking about this morning, he is ready to receive now all who come to him. No exceptions. You will not be turned away. You will not be turned away. None of you. So I'll be down here in the front after we pray. We'll sing this last song. And if you need to pray and you want to come, then come. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for your word. I thank you, God, for this call to set our minds on Christ. It's such a freeing thing. It's such a hope-giving thing. It matches up with the fact that the yoke is easy and the burden is light. It's never hard to look at something beautiful. And who can compare with Jesus? So, Father, I pray that we would hope in you this morning as your people, that if there are those in this room this morning that do not believe on Jesus Christ for their salvation, for the forgiveness of all their sins, would you call them and bring them to life? I ask, Father, these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.